Genesis 12, we're just going to read the first nine verses, but we're going to look at them in detail, so I'll ask you to leave your Bibles open as we consider this. We also turn to a couple other passages that reflect back on this. But starting with Genesis 12, beginning at verse 1, now the Lord said to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was seventy-five years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai his wife, and Lot his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran. And they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Moreh. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel. And pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. So for the reading of God's word, let's ask him to bless our time in it this morning. Would you join me? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we don't grope around in darkness, finding our way in this world. Lord, you have revealed glorious truths in your scripture. And so, Father, this morning, fix our eyes, fix our heart upon the great fulfillment of all these promises, upon our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And Lord, conform us more and more to his image day by day. Hear our prayer now for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, really, this passage here in Genesis 12 is one of the most significant, I should say it recounts, one of the most significant turning points in all of history. From this point on, from Genesis 12 forward through the rest of your Bible, everything reads differently. Think of great doctrines of the faith, the doctrine of salvation. Think of what the Bible teaches about blessing or or what the Bible teaches about faith or, or election. All of these things from this point forward are articulated differently. The Bible will articulate all of these truths in light of the call of Abram. Now, this is not to say, don't don't mishear me. It's not to say that prior to Genesis 12 there was no grace doesn't mean that prior to the call of Abraham there was no promise or that there was no salvation, but it was different. You see, back in Genesis 3 verse 15, there was sort of an initial note of deliverance sounded, that the woman would bear offspring who would strike a blow to the head of the serpent. So there were little hints. There was good news of the destruction of the serpent, but it was, it was sort of foggy and, and shadowy. Genesis 6 to 9 recounts the the story of the flood. And there God gave hints that that he intended to cleanse the world and, and bring a new creation out of the waters of chaos, just as in the beginning a creation emerged from the formlessness and the deeps and the waters over which the Spirit of God was hovering. Well, here too, a new creation would emerge from water, and yet 
when we get to Genesis 11, we see the Tower of Babel and we see that Noah's deliverance wasn't the ultimate deliverance, wasn't the ultimate hope, wasn't that consummate new creation. And yet when we get here, when we get here to Genesis 12, to Abraham, everything changes. Everything changes. That great covenant of grace that, that, that is woven throughout the fabric of Scripture from here on forth all the way to Revelation, that great covenant of grace is formally established in that covenant made with Abraham. In fact, one theologian even says that the Abrahamic covenant, we'll read more about that in Genesis 15 and, and 17, a covenant as such, but that great covenant with him was sort of the primary revelation of the covenant of grace. The promises that are given here, that are introduced, are promises that are going to be taken up and amplified now through the remainder of the Bible's covenant history. Think of this, look, God's dealings with the patriarchs, God's dealings with with Israel, whether in Egypt or in the Exodus, whether in the conquest of the land or in the period of the judges, his dealing with Israel, God's dealings with the kings of Israel and the kings of Judah are always related to the promises made to Abraham. If you were to go on into the prophets, the prophets preach against things that veer away from this. Into the New Testament, the New Testament writers unpack salvation in Christ chiefly through the grid of the promises to and the covenant made with Abram. In fact, we could argue that history, history is a a road that leads from Genesis 12 all the way now to Revelation 21 and 22. Now, in several places, the New Testament looks back on God's dealings with Abraham here and treats them as fundamental to understanding two things. First of all, these dealings with Abraham are fundamental for understanding the point of the whole Bible. Sounds pretty sweeping, right? But But I argue that's exactly what we see. The point of the whole Bible, but also God's promise to Abraham is fundamental for understanding the essence of the Christian faith. Turn turn in your Bible over to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. You'll find this on page uh, 1155 in the Pew Edition Bible. But Galatians chapter 3. We're going to hear some verses and and see how Paul, the Apostle Paul in the New Testament, rejects salvation by works, but he does so by looking to Abram. We're also going to see how the Apostle Paul tells us that Abram had the gospel revealed to him. Look at at 3, starting at verse 7. We read here, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. Did you hear that? Genesis 12, when we read, In you shall all the nations be blessed, Paul tells us that was God preaching the gospel to Abram. Verse 9, So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Going on to verse 10. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be anyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. 
But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Pretty dense passage here. We could almost have a separate sermon on that, but I promise I won't keep you uh, into early afternoon. Uh, But but look what's going on here. In verse 8, the gospel was preached beforehand when God said to Abraham in Genesis 12, verse 3, in you shall all the nations be blessed. In verse 7 here of Galatians chapter 3, we're told that those of us with faith are sons of Abraham. Daughters too. This is not just a, a guy thing. Right? Verse 9 says that our blessing is received along with Abraham's blessing. And verse 14 mentions that Christ Jesus brings specifically the blessing of Abraham to the Gentiles. That even the Holy Spirit, even the Holy Spirit is received by Abrahamic faith. See how important Genesis 12 is for Christians to understand the contours of our salvation in Jesus Christ. Now, one other passage that I think is very important that will frame how we read Genesis 12, turn a few pages beyond this to Hebrews chapter 11. You'll find this on page 1195. But Hebrews chapter 11, because here too, the New Testament reflects back on these events of Genesis 12 and shows how Abraham's faith relates to the same new creation hope that we have as Christians. See, Abram's faith was also oriented to Revelation chapter 21 and 22, just like ours. Look at Hebrews chapter 11. We'll start at verse 8. Verse 8 through 10, we read, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going, By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. And skip down to verse 13. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they're seeking a homeland. Now, if they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, well, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to, have been, to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Again, we could have a whole sermon on these verses here as well because they are so densely packed with with deep theological reflection on earlier revelation. But the key is that here too, the New Testament is looking backwards to Genesis 12. Abram did what God instructed because he believed. He believed God's promise. He had faith in his word. It's especially important to see that Abraham wasn't just concerned with earthly blessings. He wasn't just concerned with temporal blessings, blessings to be received in this life in the land of Canaan. He wasn't chiefly concerned with a mass of land 
that is now found on your map in the eastern Mediterranean. But rather, when Abram looked at the Holy Land, he related to it provisionally. He anticipated that the land God was promising pointed toward a heavenly country, the city with foundations whose designer and builder is God. Indeed, this is filled really in Revelation 21, verses 2 and 3, where John says, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. All right, well, we've looked around at a number of key passages that I think really give us insight into what we're looking at here in Genesis 12. What we're going to see this morning is this, how Genesis 12 gives us the blueprint of God's plan for history. We'll see how it's going to unfold, and it shows that Abraham, the father of all who believe, how Abram responds with faith in God's promise. So we'll look at two things this morning. First, God's promissory call, God's promissory call. And then after that, we'll look at Abram's response of faith, okay? God's promissory call and Abram's response of faith. Now, when we're looking at these passages here, these words in Genesis chapter 12, of course, these did not occur in a vacuum. These words, this call to Abram comes after 11 very interesting, dare I say, tumultuous chapters, Okay? A number of things happen. We've read about the fall into sin in Genesis chapter 3. And in following chapters, we see the chaotic results of that fall, right? Cain's murder of Abel. We see increasing sin coming throughout the world. Uh, God even laments having created humans, he says at one point. We see the flood. After the flood, we hear of the curse of Ham and of Canaan. And after that, we hear this story of Babel where people gather, trying to somehow almost storm the gates of heaven to lock God down rather than spread his glory throughout the earth. It's also an interesting little note, fitting into this chaotic Genesis 1 to 11, but an interesting little note that's going to be very important for what we read here. In Genesis 11, verse 30, in Genesis 11, verse 30, we read, Now Sarai, this is the wife of Abram, Sarai was barren. She had no child. See, Abram and Sarai, in her barrenness, have no future. There's no children who will take care of them. No children who will carry on the legacy. And yet it is into this seemingly chaotic and hopeless situation that God speaks. Indeed, he speaks unimaginable hope. Such a contrast when we read chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Now these two are really packed full of a lot of, lot of information, a lot of themes. But we'll look at these one by one. When we look at the promise made to Abram here, and we, and we see the other patriarchs, Isaac, Jacob, indeed going on into Joseph, how, how Moses leads the people in Exodus, there's three main themes that we're going to see 
sort of playing. Ooh, sorry. Three main themes we're going to see kind of playing out in the biblical story, and that is God's promise, God's promise of land. Secondly, God's promise of offspring. And third and finally, God's promise of blessing. And we see all three of those right here. Um, look at what we have first. Go, go where? To the land that I will show you. Now again, this is a, an important theme. Nearly every passage dealing with the covenant made with Abram deals with the land. Find this in Genesis 13, verse 14. Genesis 15, verse 18. Genesis 17, verse 8. We could just play out the litany of all these different places. In fact, if you look down at verse 7 of our passage here, then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. Land is a prominent theme fronted already in these words to Abram. <clears throat> now there's a caveat here. Okay? On the one hand, there is specificity. Okay? Abram is given this particular land. This land of Canaan, okay? Canaan, though, is actually a means toward larger ends, okay? Canaan is not an end in and of itself for Abram, but is a means for something bigger. I think it's important on the one hand that we, we keep in mind that, that Canaan was not important as such, but it had a practical use in God's plan. Because Canaan, Canaan was sort of like the, the 8094 of the ancient world, okay? The land of Canaan was like a strip that connected all the great empires of the ancient Near East. If all the trucks fly past on 8094, going to every major city you can imagine, the same thing happened in the land of Canaan. And that role, that practical value, will provide for the spreading abroad of the gospel unto the whole earth. And so it has a very practical implication to pick the land of Canaan. And yet there's something else we need to keep in mind. Because even with that land, yes, it was practical. Yes, it had value in that sense. But also something already begins to outstrip that, that particular piece of real estate on the eastern Mediterranean. Genesis 17 verse 8 says that Abraham and his descendants would receive this not as a of a short-term possession, but rather as an everlasting possession. Now, theologians love to debate these kinds of things. Reformed covenant theology has often, uh, has often argued with our brothers and sisters who hold to a dispensational theology. Uh, because for our dispensational brothers and sisters, they are awaiting a day when ethnic Jews will resettle the land of Canaan on the, the, that strip of land on the eastern Mediterranean coast. But you see, when we read 11, verse 16 in, in the book of Hebrews, we saw that Abraham and his descendants actually never got hung up with the land of Canaan as such, but rather, they did you notice, they lifted their eyes above that particular piece of real estate, forward into history, and upward toward heavenly realities, toward a heavenly country. You see, Abram, when he received the land, recognized that he was receiving nothing less than that new heavens and new earth presented to him in symbol, in type, in shadow. And that's what's so striking about that because, brothers and sisters, that's our hope as well. Our hope is not in a piece of land in Palestine but rather our ultimate hope is in a new creation 
a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells. That's why the Apostle Paul in Romans 4 verse 6 says this about the promise made to Abram. Paul says, For the promise to Abram and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Now wait a minute. The world? But you see, that's exactly what Paul sees Abraham is concerned with. Abram's not merely concerned with the land of Canaan, but is concerned with a new cosmos. See, that's our hope as well. It's that first theme, God's promise of the land. But there's a second theme. We mentioned that there's this promise of offspring. There's actually two things God says to Abraham here concerning offspring. We'll look at each in turn. He says, uh, the second thing in, in these opening verses, he says, I will make you a great nation. Now, on the one hand, that means that that means Abraham will have numerous descendants. Okay? Other verses will describe his descendants as being like the dust of the earth, or as numerous as the stars, or even the sand on the seashore. So, so it does refer to having numerous descendants, and yet there's something striking when God says, I will make of you a great nation. See, that Hebrew word for nation designates a kingdom politic, okay? Abram's faith, Abram's faith is, is not just his personal relationship with God. Abram's faith is, is a public politic, a public polity, recognizing that, that God is revealing a polity with power and with influence and with prestige. Now, that's not going to happen right away for Abram. Okay? Verse 6 in our passage this morning tells us that at the time the Canaanites were in the land. Right? There's a rival politic that Abram is having to deal with. And yet by the time we get to chapter 14, Abram does have men who can wage war, who can recover his kidnapped nephew. In chapter 23, Abram will go and and negotiate with the Hittites for a burial place for his wife. And in 23 verse 6, the Hittite Hittite leaders who he's talking with will call Abram a prince of God among us. I will make you a great nation, a national politic. Indeed, this national identity is even going to find initial fulfillment in that kingdom of Israel, that theocratic kingdom ruled in the the Holy Land from Jerusalem under the Davidic kings. And yet it's important that we keep this in mind when we see Abram being promised a politic because the church itself is a kingdom politic. And don't mishear me. Not saying the church needs to now go out and lobby Congress on this, that, and the other issue, right? There's plenty of political debates that brothers and sisters can have with one another. And yet when we gather as the church, we are not merely gathering to profess our private beliefs about God. But rather we are gathering to testify to anyone who sees us parked here, anyone who hears our singing or our preaching to testify that Christ is King. Not Caesar. Christ is the ruler, not the president, not the king, not the governor. We cooperate with governments, yes, but only to a degree, insofar as they do the bidding of Jesus Christ, the great king. And so Abram is given the promise of a great nation. Another thing, though, relates to this promise of offspring. The third thing that we read in Genesis 12 is he says that I will make your name great. 
God says, I will make your name great. Keep in mind, this isn't merely saying Abram will be popular, right? Abram's not going to be on the cover of Time magazine. Abram's not going to suddenly have a million Instagram followers, right? That's not what, what, what's, what's being uh, described here, merely that he will be popular. But this language of having a great name is royal language. For example, 2 Samuel 7, verses 8 and 9, a famous royal passage about the Davidic dynasty we read, Now therefore thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you, and I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones on earth. Your how name is related to this kingly oracle to David. Psalm 72 tells us something similar. Psalm 72 is a great, uh, a great kingly psalm praising Solomon's kingship. And interestingly, in 72 verse 17 we read, May his name endure forever, his fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him. All nations call him blessed. Did that stand out to you? His name is to be great, this great King Solomon, but he will thereby be a blessing. We'll talk about blessing in just a moment here, but we see Solomon beginning to be something of an initial fulfillment of this promise to Abram of a great name, of a politic, and of blessing. Genesis 17 verse 16 says that Sarai's barrenness won't be answered by just any child. Her barrenness won't won't give way to even many children. But rather, specifically, Genesis 17, 16 says that Sarai will be the mother of those of great name. We read, I will bless her, and moreover I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she will become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. And here's why this is important. Here's why this is something not just from way back when in the Old Testament days, but something that affects us today because ultimately that great royal name of Abram finds its fulfillment in Abram's offspring, our Lord Jesus Christ. As the Apostle Paul tells us in Philippians 2, verses 9 and following, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, Jesus Christ's royal name is so great That Peter can say in Acts chapter 4 verse 12, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Who'd have imagined? Who'd have imagined that the call of Abram would set into motion the coming of Christ the King? the one who bears the greatest name of all, the one of whom we read in Revelation 19, verse 16, on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. I will make your name great. But finally, God does promise blessing to Abram. This is pretty dense teaching here in verses 2 and 3. 
pretty compact, but in verse 2, God will provide Abram with, with a blessing just as he provides Abram with other things. But the verse ends now with a mention of Abram being a blessing. Now, it's a little tricky. Our English doesn't show this as well, but if, if we were at the seminary and, and you were all taking a Hebrew quiz with me, right, you would see that this word blessing shows up in a command form, in an imperative form which really matches that opening command of Genesis 12, verse 1. Go. And what is being shown then is that Abram is called to go chiefly that he might be a blessing. But a blessing to whom? Verse 3 tells us that God will bless those who bless Abram. Right? Those who rightly perceive that Abram knows the true God, those who rightly perceive that Abram is a servant of the true God, that he's been set apart to convey the blessings of the true God, God will bless them. Whereas those who dishonor Abraham by attributing his life or doctrine maybe to superstition or to pragmatism, those who dishonor Abram maybe even by, by limiting his beliefs to his personal private beliefs, or attributing anything in Abram's life to anything other than the sovereign call of the true God, God says that he will curse them. Indeed, so central is Abram and God's redemptive plan that verse 3 ends by saying, In you shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Striking. Genesis 12 shows just how far-reaching is this encounter. Abram is blessed, but not just for his own benefit. Abram is blessed that he might be a blessing. It's really interesting. I don't know if you noticed uh, how often we read that word bless in these opening verses. In, uh, in, in these verses, we read the word blessing five times. And a lot of Hebrew scholars have noticed that there's a particular word for curse that shows up in Genesis 1 to 11 five times. And we seem to have Genesis 12 then answering the fivefold curse of Genesis 1 to 11 with a fivefold blessing in God's servant Abram. God will use Abram in his answer to the curse of sin. See, the promises that God made to Abram are promises that all of us are called to embrace today as well by faith in Jesus Christ. You see, sinners need the curse undone. We're sinners. We need that, that taken away. Sinners like us need deliverance and blessing from the King. Sinners like us need to be engrafted into a holy nation, into a holy politic, uh, into the kingdom of Christ. Sinners like us need a heavenly place of rest, a final goal of a new creation where there's no more sin where there's no more suffering, where there's no more pain, where there's no more cancer. And sinners find these things in Abram's offspring, Jesus Christ, and in him alone. And the rest of the scripture will tell us about him. So first of all, God's, God's promissory call. But that brings us to our second Point. I'll try to move a little more quickly through that this morning, but we'll look at Abram's response of faith. It is striking that this passage begins with the word go. 
think we need to keep in mind this isn't somehow uh, creating a salvation by works as though salvation is by faith plus going. That's, that's not what the Bible's telling us. That's clearly not what the Apostle Paul believes is happening here. But we do see that God had a plan for Abram, right? Abram certainly probably had nice plans back in Haran. I bet you even back in Ur of the Chaldees, Abram had probably a nice idea of of the bluegrass he was going to seed into his yard there, right? He probably had some good landscaping ideas. He probably had all kinds of ideas what life in Ur might look like. And yet God calls him to ditch those plans and dreams and embrace God's far better plan. Now, God didn't tell him all the details, Notice God didn't reason with him, try to to argue him into convincing him that this was a good idea. God just said, go. Believe that I'm a trustworthy king, Abram. Do my holy and righteous will. Believe that what I've got in store for you is better than anything you can drum up for yourself. And what happens? Verse verse 1, God says, go. And verse 4 says, so Abram went. Nice little balance there in the the Hebrew words. Praise God he did. Praise God he did. If he hadn't gone, our Bible would look very different. Our experience of God would be very different. I suspect the Bible may have read much more like that chaotic, curse-strewn opening chapters of Genesis. Now, when Abram arrives in the promised land, though, what we find at the end of our chapter this morning, he engages in a number of different actions, and we probably could could lay out every single one of the things he does, but I think we can boil down the function of all these different actions to two different things. Abram engages in witness, and Abram engages in worship. Let's look at each, okay? First of all, Abram engages in witness through his land journey, but also through his altar building. Now look at verse 6. Verse 6 says that he passed through the land all the way to Shechem. And if you skip down to verse 8, it says he moved to the hill country near Bethel and Ai. And in the following verse, verse 9, he journeyed on, going toward the Negev. Now keep in mind, I'm sure Abram was curious about what what was in the land here, but this is not chiefly Abram exploring, looking for the place to best water his sheep, or the best place where he could pitch his tent, or the best place to get a cheap haircut. No, he's acting as a vassal. And Abram's travel through the land is something that a royal king would do to survey the territory belonging to the great king under whom he served. And one would traverse the land in the name of the great king to bear witness to the sovereignty of the great king. See, this wasn't just a traipse around the promised land with his RV. This was a testimony to the Lord's kingship. The same as it takes place with the altar building that we read about in verses 7 and 8. Now, keep in mind, altars in the Bible usually are used for sacrifice. That's, that's what we're most familiar with. And yet, altars also function as commemorative stele. Here's what a stele is. You know, when you go to a national park or something, and there's like a plaque. Maybe you go to a battlefield and there's a plaque saying, at this place was the battle of such and such, or at this place, general so-and-so fell. Okay? It's, a, it's a plaque of commemoration. And altars do the same thing. But you see, when an altar is built, not only is it used for sacrifice, it's a testimony, a monument to God's reign, God's claim over the land. 
And in Abram's building of altars, witnesses, witness altars devoted to the worship of Yahweh begin to get placed right in Canaanite territory. Abram was not content to sort of keep a low profile here, to sort of skirt around and, and keep his faith in the promise private, but rather he throws down the gauntlet, erecting tokens of the Lord's kingship there in the land, saying, this is the Lord's land. Sometimes we sing the psalm, I'm sorry, the song, this is my father's world. And we're making a similar claim. This is God's world, not ours. This is God's world. And any plans we might have for this world must reflect his plans. We'll point out, too, it's no accident that that the cities mentioned here regarding altars are Shechem and Ai and Bethel and the Negev because all of these are sites that will feature in a few more books. In the book of Joshua, when Joshua conquers the land... See, Abram is symbolically conquering the land for the Lord at this point, anticipating Joshua's conquest many centuries to come. Now, the time is not yet for them to be destroyed. Genesis 15, verse 6, Abram will be, will be told that the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete, and yet Abram will still testify that the day is coming. The day is coming when sinners will be judged. So first of all, Abram engages in witness. But secondly, Abram engages in worship. We mentioned that altars do more than reflect worship, but they do no less than that. Abram doesn't harbor his trust in God inwardly. He doesn't keep his worship inward and and private, but engages both soul and body, building altars where he physically engages in worship of God, there again testifying that God is the only object of worship. And in addition to this, verse 8 tells us that Abram called on the name of the Lord. Now this phrase, to call on the name of the Lord, doesn't happen a lot in the Bible. But the last time we heard it was in Genesis 4, verse 26. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. See, what Abram is doing here by calling on the name of the Lord is aligning himself with the godly line of Seth, worshiping God in a Sethite fashion. Sometimes this is an expression that can refer to prayer, to call upon God's name, but it is also an expression of profession, of identifying oneself with the name of the Lord. By calling on the Lord's name, Abram is saying, I'm the Lord's man. I'm a servant of the Lord. I'm a worshiper of the Lord. Indeed, I am property of the Lord. Now, Paul told us when we read Galatians 3 a few minutes ago that God proclaimed the gospel to Abram, and we've seen that gospel message is just as vital and just as vivid today. That promise of a a new creation land. That promise of, of a royal descendant. That promise of blessing to the nations. Brothers and sisters, that's our hope this morning. Because we've come here to profess that Christ has fulfilled these promises perfectly. And we proclaim these promises now to a watching world. Like Abram, we are those who are blessed that we might be a blessing in return. 
But this morning, we respond like Abram as well, as those professing the faith of Abram. We witness this morning, and we worship this morning. See, when we gather here at church, this isn't simply out of custom. It isn't merely to reconnect with one another after a week and and see how we're all doing. That's a wonderful byproduct of what we do. It is good to see one another, is it not? And yet our gathering chiefly sends a message to the world that this is Christ's land, that our song and our preaching and our corporate prayer We don't profess allegiance to human powers, but are professing allegiance to Christ the King. So that the world drives by here, sees our cars in the lot, reads our church sign, and has to deal with our worship, with the witness that Christ is King. There's two main things they'll do. Some will drive by and they'll suppress this. And they'll say those Christians are nuts. Those Christians with their hooey religion. Others will drive by and will hear our song and will hear this preaching and will hear this claim that Christ is king and they will bow the knee to him. Christ is bringing in his own. Expanding that blessing of Abraham to all the nations. In fact, all the nations are here. Very few of us, I think, maybe have Jewish ancestry in something of a genetic kind of way. And then look at us, the blessing to the nations. Same God meets us today, brothers and sisters, reversing the curse with blessing, blessing us with Abram's royal seed, drawing us to the royal name of Jesus, and fixing our eyes this morning forward and upward to his new creation promise the restoration of all things, and life in his presence forevermore. Thanks be to God. Amen. Let's pray. Father, you've stunned us. You've stunned us with your glory and with your greatness. And Lord, as we've considered these promises made to Abram so long ago, We're in awe of the fact that these promises give meaning to our lives as well. And so, Father, this week, fix these realities, impress them upon our thinking, upon our worldview, that in all we do, we might see that you are near us and for us and enable us to bless others, to do those things which bring glory to you and show love for our neighbor. Hear our prayer now for Jesus' sake. Amen.